scandalous. Just in case. Lots of things in this universe. This space bar seems to work. Okay, I think it does seem to work. Yeah, space bar will work. Unfortunately, clicker does not work, so I'll just put that over here and we'll just so, ignore that. So, is it space bar or is it this thing? Oh, well, okay. 
This guy. Space yeah, this no, space bar. Yeah, 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 okay. okay look back. at the screen. Yep. And then going back with back arrow. Yeah. Yep. All right, yeah, we're good. Yeah, okay. Thank Here's you. Irina. Um, <laughs> I want to look at 115 and... <laughs> Pardon? I want to look at 115 because you wrote that you would be reserving 115 just in case. Oh, well that was, that was our backup, okay. our backup, backup just in case. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, but we're here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, careful. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'll 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 um I'll start off and I'll invite people to sit up in the So we can start in a sec. I think Jennifer wants to announce next week's lecture. It's so she, I don't have that information. <laughs>
Are you locked your eyes? Oh, here she comes. She's okay, in there. Your hand. Yeah. All right, for that awkward pause. So, uh, <laughs> welcome or welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is our first Thursday in the spring 2023 semester of the uh, lecture series for Krika. And uh, thank you for turning up this afternoon on this snowy uh, January afternoon. Uh, I, you know, most people around the room are familiar faces, so I probably don't have to go into all the logistics, but very quickly. Uh, there is a sign-up sheet that's going around the room, so please do note your attendance. And if you are not already on our mailing list, please do give us your contact information so that we can uh, connect uh, with you more uh, personally. Um, so before we get to the talk today, um, I'll just say that next week's talk, February 2nd, uh, will be given by Volodymyr uh, Dubovic from the um, Mechnikov National University in Ukraine and currently a visiting professor at Tufts University. And the topic of that talk will be um, the biggest war since 1945, why and how Russia's invasion of Ukraine matters for European security. And, um, okay, I think I'll just end it at that and ask uh, Ted Gerber, professor of sociology, to introduce uh, today's speaker. Great, thanks, Jennifer. So, I'm uh, I'm I'm really delighted to to introduce Russell uh, Zanka, who is our speaker today. I've known Russell for a number of years. Um, in fact, uh, I would I would say that I would give Russell a lot of credit for getting me really interested initially in uh, Central Asian societies uh, back I don't know 15 or so years ago. We met. I don't know exactly when. Uh, so Russell grew up in Queens, New York, and that's an important fact because that helps explain why he, like me, have, have had the sad fate of being fans of the New York Mets uh, baseball team. <laughs> but uh, in terms of his more professional accomplishments, uh, he attended Hunter College in, in uh, CUNY as his undergrad. Then he did doctoral work at, at uh, uh, several places, Columbia, Indiana, and also Uni University of Wisconsin, uh, before receiving his doctorate in anthropology at the University of Illinois in 1999. And um, he was really you know, one of the pioneered kind of uh, US uh, scholars who started doing field work in Central Asian countries. I know he's been even to Turkmenistan. I think he actually was banned from Tur or kicked out of Turkmenistan, as I recall, um, uh, as I guess a lot of people have been who uh, managed to actually make it there in the first place. But he's done extensive work in Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, also Kyrgyzstan, and he's been uh, traveling there, studying these societies since the early 1990s. Um, his books include Life in a Muslim Uzbek Village, Cotton Farming After Communism, and also a book he co-edited with Jeff Sahadeo called Everyday Life in Central Asia. And he's also written on a wide range of subjects um, in article form, uh, such as the nature of rural life, agricultural economies, religious beliefs, oral histories, cuisine, and hospitality in Central Asia. Um, he's been involved with uh, uh, Nazarbayev University through the University of Wisconsin's uh, program there, with which uh, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar. 
Um, and you know, for a number of years, he's been you know traveling, continuing to travel the region, to the region. Uh, he's been a faculty member at the Northeastern Illinois University since 1997. Um, he's had visiting appointments at Illinois, uh, University of Illinois, University of Chicago. He just finished, I know, a, a fellowship at the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, and he also gave a keynote talk on pastoralism in, in, at uh, Nazarbayev University uh, just last November for the Heritage Alliance New Silk Road Conference. And he's going to soon be spending time during his sabbatical at uh, the Collegium Helveticum in Zurich. And so his topic today is pastoralism in uh, Kazakhstan. And I look forward to a very dynamic presentation because it's hard for uh, Russell not to be very energetic and dynamic. Uh, and, and so uh, unlike some academics, you know, he, he's, his energy is very infectious. So I, I'll put that pressure on him. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for, uh, is it, this guy's on, yeah? Let me see. I'm usually pretty loud, but I figure it's always good to have a mic. It doesn't. It doesn't actually project. Yeah, it's just for recording. Oh. No, no, that is that is for the room. It is for the room? Yeah, yeah. Go you can just, hear me? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. use Hello? your normal no. voice. It should be okay. Well, uh, I, I wanted to say that... Uh, one of my brothers is an actor, and he always says that whenever you're giving a talk or doing anything in front of an audience, the, uh, the, the operative phrase is fast, funny, and off. So I don't know that I can be fast or funny, but uh, eventually I'll be off. So you have that to look forward to. Um, you know, it's 30, it's 30 years since I've been associated with the University of Wisconsin-Madison in fits and starts. And um, of course, I love this place. I love coming back here from time to time. And uh, I'm very grateful to Krika for giving me this invitation. Um, it's only one of the second or third talks that I'm giving on this topic that I'm hoping to begin researching in earnest by next year. And so uh, Ted mentioned at the end of the introduction that I'm, I'm on my way to Zurich, which is true. And that's the place where I'm really hoping to, to make this project gel but with some colleagues that I'll be working with there. So. Anyway, uh, I just ask you to bear with some of my preliminary ideas, and I look vo very forward to some of your comments. Um, I have some slides that I'll be showing, but I, I guess I should say to you that the slides are they're, they're important, but they're in some ways incidental to the talk. Uh, they give you something to look at uh, while I talk, sort of thing. Uh, so at any rate, the first one, as I put up here, it's just basically kind of a summation of... Um, uh, both ideas and, you know, the, the substance of uh, what's important to think about for Kazakhstan and pastoralism, I think. So anyway, uh, without further ado, then, I'll begin. <clears throat> With Kazakhstan's independence, national leaders and intellectuals rejuvenated tributes to and pride in the country's ancestral populations, most of whom had been pastoral nomads. This way of life, now almost totally defunct, conjured an imaginary replete with courage, freedom, toughness, endurance, and a distinct culture centered on a vast environment and the management of domesticated <clears throat> animals within it. Indeed, adaptability and flexibility enabled ancestral and modern populations to endure and survive despite pasture refreezings, the famous jute, droughts, plagues, and warfare, owing in large part to unique pastoral social formations, 
for extensive livestock provisioning and organization. Sociopolitical institutions developed across an expanse of varied ecosystems that counterbalanced destructive forces, including medieval Arab conquests, Russian colonial seizure of pastures, and Stalinist collectivization. Furthermore, archaeological and historical records confirm that Kazakhstan's ancestral populations helped create thriving states and empires while participating in what contemporary scholars would refer to as global value chains. The so-called Eurasian Silk Routes, with their requisite linkages and communicative systems of exchange involving goods, foodstuffs, crops, and ideas, among other things. The notion of heritage enables us to think about what's worth knowing from the past, as well as what things and concepts should be protected and preserved, if possible, because we consider them to be worth appreciating and honoring as matters of human achievement and intellect. Obviously, Kazakhstan is a vast country, and this uh, depiction of it as a map doesn't quite do it justice, but you get the idea. Uh, so this is, this is modern Kazakhstan established after 1991. Since the 1990s, Kazakhstan's elites have played an outsized role in making a revised historical and national consciousness. Not without its criticisms, of course. They have based such consciousness on understandings of cultural particularities or even properties judged as formative and enduring in light of what makes today's Kazakhs who they are. Whereas much of the varying narrative of what we could call the Kazakh story addresses processes and events of the past that have been neglected, disparaged, and even whitewashed during the imperial and Soviet periods, it still appears that much of what we may call society or the public at large sees pastoralism especially its mobile or nomadic aspects, as a long historical phase, connecting contemporary people to their ancestry. In short, a substantial part of making an independent Kazakhstan meant redressing and even defining the ways in which the establishment of sovereignty and national uniqueness had been and continues being, in some circles, negated and denigrated by those who once dominated and by those hoping to dominate again. Of course, I'm referring to modern Russia in this instance and its post-Soviet reckoning of Kazakhstan. In other words, contemporary historical narratives must be political of necessity. They must be assertive by nature from the point of view of the Kazakh state. And while the country today certainly understands that domesticated livestock production still accounts for vital aspects of the overall agricultural economy on which people depend for sustenance and secondary consumer goods, there may be little that connects modern herders directly to the health and future of a country that seems more and more detached from romantic ideals and more focused on high-tech development and commercial success. Of course, people may argue that this need not be such a vital concern when, after all, they surely know about the thousands of years of pastoral nomadic heritage that occurred in the country with variations <clears throat> across the regions and their ecologies. Similarly, they also may know that the necessities and vagaries of livestock management have helped account for changes in regional relations among Slavic, Turkic, Mongolian peoples and those of China, technologies from metallurgy to horse breeding, linguistic development, Turkic, Persianate, and Mongolian. 
and the rise and fall of numerous polities, from the Xiongnu to the Turk cognate to the Jungars, that have shaped social organization, exchange systems, and political institutions across Eurasia into today. Besides, few contemporary citizens are going for want of the cherished livestock products, such as meat, dairy, wool, and leather. Why would anyone need to consider the situation or the plight of remaining but dwindling numbers of this society who continue to herd and manage animals in ways that continue connecting them to the heritage of mobility, multi-seasonal residences, and the steppe, alpine meadow, semi-desert, and desert environments where their way of life predominated? I'll come back to this question after the next section, but here, just a few slides to kind of illustrate how different some of these pastoralist environments can be. So both of those, those first two slides were both from the same area of Jambul, right, in southern Kazakhstan, but one in a much more mountainous, lush area in the springtime. And then one of the m- most extreme uh, pastoralist environments, the Mangastau, which is, uh, as you know, the extreme uh, southwest of Kazakhstan. And you can see here, uh, how desertified that environment is. At any rate, <clears throat> so I'll come back to that question after this section. Thomas Mann, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, the great 20th century uh, German novelist, winner of the Nobel Prize, once quipped that anti-communism was the greatest madness of the 20th century. Perhaps. But then communism itself proved responsible for plenty of its own madness. In all of its madness, one aspect often has been overlooked, and that is partly because it was neither a particularly Soviet nor Stalinist invention, though one could argue well that the madness of it was perfected under Stalin's rule. I'm talking about a 20th century madness that, of course, stretches back to the last half of the 19th century in the Russian Empire. The mad and eventually murderous process is not collectivization per se, but sedentarization, right? Making nomads settle. Russia and the USSR joined a fraternity of states and empires who have tried, mostly successfully, to settle mobile herders. These include the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire, <clears throat> uh, the Republic, modern Republic of Iran, the modern Turkish Republic, and uh, African countries once they became independent, including Kenya, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. Uh, and needless to say, the People's Republic of China. Almost all of the policies of the previous 150 years regarding nomads have been buttressed by ideologies that criticize pastoralism as some combination of wild, uncontrollable, primitive, wasteful, and most trenchant for the settlement mission, uncivilized lifeways. Archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians have pointed out that the sedentarizing master narratives often base themselves on notions of making pastoralist land more productive, enriching a polity's agricultural sector, turning pastoralists into educated and modern persons, and arrogating to the coffers of the state the necessary revenue, as taxes do them by evasive mobile folk. The, the division of uh, what's today Kazakhstan at, at, at the latter part of the uh, Russian Empire, the second half of the 19th century. From Sardom's late 19th century and early 20th century periods, one could say settlement may have been as connected 
to appropriating lands for newly relocated Russian peasants as it was with controlling Kazakh territory and gradually civilizing nomads. Now, while conscientious and sensible scholars and politicians always saw the value of pastoralist practices, and I mean during the 19th century and early 20th century within Russia, uh, <clears throat> they made serious contributions to uh, scholarship, and they pointed out the value of, of uh, nomads to the economy. But their numbers were small, and few understood the f- true value of mobility with its vital physical and social ramifications all the way through until the 1940s and later. Forced collectivization, beginning in 29, and the twin accompaniment of abuse and neglect resulted in the deaths of approximately 1.5 million rural people and the absolute ruin of the pastoralist sector of the economy. Although recovery took decades and the horrors that families suffered can never be assuaged, even the USSR finally understood the importance of at least limited mobility for the pastoralist economy and livestock management's primary necessity for the diets and nutrition of tens of millions of Soviet citizens, to say nothing of pastoralism's secondary consumer products connected to industries including textiles and tanneries. During the past three decades, we have seen a rapid decline of pastoralism's fortunes, beginning with independence, only to be followed by a surging recovery today. Correspondingly, myriad changes are occurring in terms of property ownership, increased ranching models for livestock productivity, wide-scale reliance on processed fodder supplies, adverse climate change, of course, as an exogenous factor, including warmer temperatures and spreading aridity, and smallholders of stock having few opportunities to herd animals on productive pastures, thereby creating chances for localized pasture degradation. If one crucial lesson was learned from the madness of sedentarization, particularly in an area where nomadic pastoralism constituted a major form of ecological adaptation, it is that it never was incompatible with any other way of life or type of adaptation, including urbanization. Given that today we can dispense with nonsensical evolutionary hypotheses enjoined by at least a healthy respect for the country's pastoralist patrimony, why not consider reevaluating and learning about the state of this enterprise and how it may possibly serve typical statist aims of development and growth, but that occur in ways that help the greatest number and enrich rather than detract from the environment? I'll answer that uh, when I get to the fourth part. So this just gives uh, some interesting idea here of the vast routes of uh, nomadic peoples uh, in the latter half of the 19th century. And um, while most of you can't see it from where you're sitting, some of these routes are so lengthy that they they stretched in one direction for uh, nearly 1,000 kilometers. And um, you may know this about pastoralism in in Kazakhstan as opposed to Kyrgyzstan or even parts of Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan, is that the Kazakhs traveled the greatest distances except for those people who practice in in some of the mountainous areas, uh, particularly in the northeast and the south. But generally speaking, they follow these great ellipses, and they could cover in the course of a calendar year, uh, as I was indicating, more than 1,000 kilometers. So it's a very interesting map, simply because it it gives us these these routes from that period. At any rate, 
in order to answer the question, which was the one I posed before about, you know, what, what's, what's the necessity of really looking into this situation, uh, I want to take just a moment to consider my own profession or discipline, which is anthropology, obviously. Anthropology, or ethnography, as it is more commonly known in Central Eurasia, has a contradictory legacy at best where the topic of Eurasian pastoral nomadism is concerned. From the late 19th century through the 1980s, we have both detailed and accurate descriptions about uh, pastoralist life and frequently, and at the same time, evolutionist credos as kind of a theory about the pastoralist stage of development, replete with modifiers such as wild, savage, and with exceptions and independent understandings notwithstanding, most ethnographers thought that they were helping to document a primitive way of life that was not compatible with mod the modern world, and that simply made for an impediment to an advanced culture where people sent their children to school, paid their taxes, and learned to operate heavy industrialized machinery. Ethnography, therefore, served empire, and it served the radicalism, senso stricto, of the early Soviet regime and Stalinism. And despite some important correctives and innovations that took place in Kazakhstan since the 1940s, one can make a persuasive argument that not all Kazakhs were ever able to appreciate the benefits of pastoralism after so much intellectual and political damage to its reputation took place. Rather, nomadic pastoralism became something that contemporary Kazakhs wanted to live down. Today, neither anthropology nor anthropologists can exactly undo the damage wrought in the past, but what we can do when we are at our best is listen attentively, represent the views of others as accurately as possible, and then try to present information and thoughts based on interviews and our own observations as truthfully as we can. This should be the plan moving forward. I have a section here where I beat up American anthropology, but I'll dispense with that. It's been beaten up enough. Okay. So just a couple of slides here. Fast forwarding to uh, the, the 1990s and to the present, uh, those scholars and practitioners of pastoralist studies and pastoralism are confronted with new difficulties, even crises. This past summer, I took my first real opportunity to begin to study the history and processes of animal husbandry in Kazakhstan. Mostly, I focused on primary research concerning then-contemporary studies. Uh, this is why I have this the glamour of scholarship at the Library of Congress. But I wanted to point out to you that in the top right-hand corner, you can see uh, most of the title of the journal, Vaprosi Geografia Kazakhstan. And I found this journal to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, not most of the articles, because I didn't really, that wasn't my topic. But when it came to pastoralism, and almost every issue uh, throughout the decade of the 60s had one uh, major article on pastoralism, the, the geographers began to talk about the crisis in the, in, in the ecology and what we might think of as climate change. And I, I was really fascinated by this. Um, so when I often faced serious linguistic challenges, depending on what kind of specialty literature I was reading, I could not help but notice how Kazakh geographers, as far back as the 60s, already spoke about the perils of climate change, particularly in Kazakhstan's western areas. In fact, the 1960s ushered in a new direction in Soviet Kazakhstan, where, wherein many pastures were plowed up for alternative use. Now, this, isn't, this is beyond the Virgin Lands campaign in the 50s. This is the 60s now. Um, and the state began embracing a newer development model fixated on growth and productivity of the livestock sector. 
mobility decreased in semi-desert and desert areas, which led to more rapid constraints given these more fragile ecosystems. So in other words, what I'm saying is by taking people out of those environments that look so precarious, they actually did more damage to them. Uh, this was an interesting work, too. As you can see here, it was a school book. I happened upon this, and um, it's, it, it's a work you know, just before collectivization, and in a way, this author, Leonov, was trying very hard to sort of like create a kind of respect for pastoral nomadism, but some of it is also very patronizing. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting work. Anyway, it's just an example of, of, of one of these things. <clears throat> so this is all a prelude to the, uh, the, the crisis that I, I glossed. Without plunging into the minefield of who is to blame for climate change and recognizing that climate change... This was a page from an issue of Paprosi Geography, which talked about climate change. Which I, you know, when I saw this and I was like, "Wow!" Like these these guys knew this stuff; they knew it well in advance. Somebody also told me that Alexander von Humboldt had written about the changes to the Aral Sea, and I said, "Okay, well, we, I guess we can really go back pretty far here." But anyway. <clears throat> So we can simply agree that it's now accompanied by higher temperatures, obviously, and increased aridity as we witness evidence of how ruinous it can be to many forms of life and ecosystems in Central Eurasia, climate change. One short-term and logical result of this in connection with pastoralism, though admittedly not a response to climate change as such, is to restrict movements of herds to far-off pastures and keep animals protected and restricted in sheltered environments where they can be well-fed and watered. This greatly reduces the risk that people and animals will be at the mercy of climatic fluctuations. The problem, however, is that this kind of livestock management suits the ranching model, which means that many people of the country's livestock sector simply are too poor to participate or participate only as hired help. Potentially the bigger problem, so ecologists argue, is that it restricts smallholders of stock, people who generally have uh, less than 50 head of cattle or horses or uh, <clears throat> sheep or camels, whatever, what have you, uh, is that it runs the risk of it runs the risk of overuse and degradation where they live. So they don't go anywhere and they keep their animals feeding just where they live. This this is terrible for the environment. And the simple reason that smallholders of stock do not wish to be mobile with herds is that it's not cost effective for them. Struggling pastoralists with little insurance or protection for their holdings are not going to spend time and resources looking for better grazing and watering opportunities without some guarantees and support, such as repair of decaying infrastructure. While one may argue that it is just the way things are in the 21st century, that ranching is more efficient, cost-effective, and productive, then we still may be failing to recognize how ungrazed, more remote pastures adversely affect climate inadvertently, of course, by failing to store carbon and help enrich soils and plant cover. Indeed, this actually is a benefit of ruminant and non-ruminant grazing. Furthermore, we are not talking about an insignificant proportion of livestock overall because estimates are that the smallholders possess upward of 65% of the country's livestock. Just as the concept of rewilding rangeland, like letting it lay fallow, letting it recover itself, uh, can be crucial to climatic stability and recovery, 
in Central and Inner Eurasia, so can helping pastoralists access remoter areas that have achieved something of a rewilded equilibrium. In northern Kazakhstan, for example, we have seen from remote sensing data that reduced grazing pressures lead to fire prevalence, to say nothing of an overall reduction in grasslands biodiversity. As an anthropologist, I think that one approach to learning more is to begin to learn as comprehensively as possible about the current state of pastoralist practices. And while not limiting ourselves only to the direct participants of this enterprise, meaning the shepherds, for example, I do think one perspective largely missing from all sorts of literature and organizations concerned with livestock production is ethnographic perspectives. Even if we are discussing an ever-shrinking percentage of the roughly 20 million people who live in Kazakhstan, it would be good to gauge interest levels in livelihoods devoted to animal husbandry in a variety of ecologies concerning diverse income levels and the very idea that this is a way of life worth continuing. Obviously, there are myriad considerations and viewpoints here to try and understand, including generation gaps, extended family ties, gender dynamics, urban-rural divides, the worldviews themselves of shepherds, scientists, business people, and politicians, and those of ordinary citizens who are removed from day-to-day livestock management concerns, but who benefit substantially from pastoralist work and production. In the words of anthropologist Carol Ferre, who's actually done some studying among uh, pastoralist populations, we should start thinking about pastoralism's current Get ready for it. Modalities of its functioning. A good, uh, that's, uh, I think, academies for saying that social scientists need to spend time with people who will explain to us the pros and cons of this way of life. Furthermore, in terms of thinking about the potential renewal of mobility, why should it be considered and why on earth would people wish to consider doing it in a digital age when most capable and curious young people can earn a lot more money writing code as opposed to chasing after and working with sheep or milking horses. What we need to reckon is how it may even be possible to have people consider being mobile with their stock. What would make it worthwhile for them to move even short distances? Most likely, the quick answer is money. But like many other matters, we cannot know much about this unless we put in the work of asking and learning. Thus, I am coming to the point of my talk where I introduce my idea. Uh, Big or small, uh, it's a large-scale and comprehensive anthropological study of pastoralism in Kazakhstan, small as the population may be now. In assessing how damaged or impractical any future sort of mobility may be for current smallholders, we have to consider whether or not this will potentially have an even more deleterious effect on the area's climate, as well as on the health of some of the world's largest remaining contiguous rangelands. Central Eurasia accounts for about 25% of Earth's total rangeland. And in Kazakhstan alone, there are approximately 2 million square hectares, uh, I'm sorry, 2 million square kilometers of pasture that accounts for 86% of Kazakhstan's agricultural areas. And we should bear in mind that according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, None of the world's 15 terrestrial biomes is more threatened than temperate grasslands. Increasingly, archaeological research during the past 20 years reveals agroeconomic diversity of Kazakhstan from antiquity, given its vast spaces, environments, 
and settler and mobile populations. While there was never anything wrong or bad about agricultural development in Kazakhstan per se, including grains and potatoes, the enduring and mistaken idea that pastoralists underutilize territories where they live is not special to Kazakhstan. Nevertheless, the legacy of that arrogance still haunts pastoralist pursuits. It's a challenge to help ourselves think outside of reductive tropes, such as progress and backwardness. We might consider, rather, how 21st century technologies can aid pastoralism's future, everything from helping pastoralists move their animals to locating reliable pastures and water sources. Again, since the 90s, historians have written respectful and revised analyses of pastoralist lifeways, kinship-based social organization, and they've shown in illuminating detail how this changeable but enduring system was transformed in many ways for the worse during the 20th century. This is an absolutely extraordinary uh, book that, that I came upon not too long ago. Uh, it's the Historical Cultural Atlas of the Kazakh People, and it's got these like wonderful maps and photographs, and, and, uh, and it goes into so many details about uh, various aspects of pastoral nomadism from the medieval period. But the point uh, of it all is that it just treats it all as its history, its past, its over. I'm not alone in thinking that this is a problem. Historians are not at fault or to blame for doing history, but the implication that pastoralism gets construed as history is the issue. This is why we also need more ethnographic research that doesn't just narrate what we can observe, but ask the question for which we have fewer answers than conjectures for the time being. This was the height, right? This was the height of Soviet development uh, of, of uh, well, certainly uh, horse breeding. Um, but uh, a lot of it pertained, uh, much of this book pertains to what was going on in Kazakhstan. So you can could, you could imagine my delight when I found this book. I thought it would be much more pornographic than the title implies, but it wasn't. At any rate, <clears throat> scholars of pastoralism and representatives of NGOs often seek to facilitate increased parity in national economies, thereby improving living standards for all people and encouraging rural people in particular to be greater stakeholders in the work they do and in the roles they may play within their nation's well-being, such as feeding them or helping them access energy resources. From the standpoint of modern states and political leaders, however, these interests are not always shared. I know that's shocking. Why should they concern themselves with tens of thousands of practically subsistence-level pastoralists when they can achieve high growth and productivity from a private landowner who provides national and export markets with exponential numbers as kilos of meat and dairy products in comparison to thousands of individual subsistence households that at best deal in tens of head of livestock. The landowner, as a rancher, needs little aid from abroad, can afford his own inputs, and can even hire the otherwise subsistence pastoralists, thus relying on their expertise for maintenance and high productivity. If needed, the wealthy landowner can send shepherds farther to more distant pastures to ensure that his stock has nutritional and water requirements met. Otherwise, the landowner can afford to have water and fodder transported to him, taking full advantage of new technologies to pursue wealth and meet the demands of local, regional, national, and export markets. 
The great X or unpredictable factor in all of this, again, is climate change. It affects different global areas and their populations unequally, but with increasingly devastating consequences for areas already showing higher temperatures and greater dryness. How will the seemingly unlimited needs to increase livestock production be met, if at all, given certain practices that could be considered even post-environmental or post-ecological? While most practices and technological adoptions have inherent risks, here we are talking about achieving something like balance or equilibrium that incorporates human needs, animal needs, and the needs of various forms of wildlife, vegetation, and even soils. Sure, any one aspect can undergo assault and damage only to recover later. But today the scale gets ever larger, and the influence and impact can be far greater than the localities in which damage occurs. So in other words, I'm saying I'm not unmindful of the fact that Kazakhstan can only do so much to control climate, right? Or its pastures. I mean, there's a larger world of which it's a part. This is true for everybody everywhere, uh, nevertheless. <clears throat> Whereas it is often true that people can solve problems that at first seem intractable, intractable and inevitable, we also know that there are seeming solutions at hand that have precedence within the Anthropocene. Too often, terms such as conservation and sustainability sound as if they are a call to limit a country's growth and prosperity. And they remind us of crises and the things we have done to cause the problems that we now endure. However, conserving and sustaining also imply making a good future possible. If one were to suggest the idea of going back for the future, the phrase doesn't imply backwardness, the reinvention of the wheel, or a simple return to a romanticized past. Rather, the idea views pastoralism as a modern branch of agriculture that specializes in the rearing and exploitation of domesticated animals for human needs. My argument is one dealing not so much in an assertion or a conviction, but in one that looks for possible answers or solutions by learning if people will consider mobility in areas of Kazakhstan, particularly if their own requirements for a desirable way of life can be met. Certainly the predication of my argument is that extensive pastoralism, extensions in terms of people involved and animals raised, combined with environments conducive to mutual well-being, can enable Kazakhstan's agriculture to flourish and co correspondingly improve the national biome across its subregions. Unquestionably, Kazakhstanis want and enjoy pastoralist products. The great dilemma moving forward is how to satisfy national and international markets' demands given current constraints. The unused pastures, <clears throat> the disequilibrium among smallholders, and the increasingly larger and powerful ranchers. One question that could mark the difference between sustainability and degradation is whether or not it is possible to achieve consensus among all specialists and professionals connected to pastoralism combined with practical consumer desires. I suspect that is the greatest hurdle. Uh, despite the deserved criticism of the communist past, a couple of examples here from our, from our Konyabotstvo, uh, as, as this was the Soviet system as it existed in the early 80s. Um, <clears throat> deserved criticism of the communist past, Scholars relate that by the 1970s and 80s, the Soviet state did a good job of meeting pastoralist needs, particularly when mobility was viewed as having productive value. Increasingly, the state provided transportation to seasonal pastures, provisions for children's education, 
and mobile veterinary care, among other services, that allowed pastoralists to understand the importance of their way of life to their society and country. One could argue that there were mutual investments without pretending that it was some sort of ideal system. And here's a, 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 a kind of a horse uh, dairy enterprise of that period. <clears throat> Today, one of the unknowns we face concerns capitalism and pastoralism, particularly their compatibility. Frankly, there's no question that capitalism can produce pastoralist surplus and wealth on nearly limitless scale. One need only look at countries such as the United States, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, and Australia. Unfortunately, a bill seems to be due that not even the seemingly infinite wealth may be capable of repaying. Metaphor aside, the biomes and ecological systems in which we live can give only so much before they can function without tree cover, natural, vegeta natural vegetation, and the constant tapping of aquifers and rivers. The western states of America have begun exacting their vengeance as I speak. It isn't as if there weren't warnings from historians and environmentalists for decades, including Bernard DeVoto, Wallace Stegner, William Cronin, and Wes Olson. But for nearly a century and a half, we humans made unprecedented strides in improving the quality of our lives through scientific and technological innovations. But all of these improvements also led to our arrogance and disregard for the earthly ecosystems that we determined must be conquered and coerced. The 21st century presents us with more than hindsight. It gives us the ability to continue building on advances to consider former practices that worked well and caused less destruction than what came later. While we cannot really predict all that much, we can make an effort. If we have learned much about <clears throat> agriculture in its entirety, it is that huge-scale operations and homogeneity of crops and congruent genetic modification and overly selective breeding of livestock can have perilous consequences. While it is true that humans have always selected traits to suit conditions and climates, we would do well to realize that smallness and uniqueness also have their advantages. <clears throat> During the past 20 years, in many parts of the world, there has been a movement toward locality. Smallness, like I need to tell this to a Madison audience, uh, smallness and support for small-scale farming and livestock raising efforts, with associated ideas of slow food, Globalization and terroir. I, I had to get one French word in, so I got it, terroir. Uh, one area of research that I wish to consider here will be the possibilities for smallholders to thrive, even if prevailing conditions are not favorable. It would be worthwhile to consider how new markets or niche markets can be created or extended in Kazakhstan and abroad, and one would think that local control and organization would be essential. Pertaining to niche markets, I consider the possible popularity of Kazakh horse meat. Maybe not with this audience, but hear me out. Uh, selling in countries such as Switzerland, Germany, Belgium, and France, where there are consumers with a history of such culinary predilections. If marketed as sustainably raised and harvested. Similarly, in much of the Western world, there's a growing concern about gut biomes. Another biome for you and the need for increasing gut bacteria. Why couldn't or shouldn't products including kumis and shubat find willing and interested consumers in Europe and North America? I know that everybody knows what kumis is, right? Fermented mare's milk. But um, how many people know what shubat is? 
Well, you know it, of course, you're from Kazakhstan. <laughs> so that's fermented camel's milk. Well, this is an interesting article I came across. Um, there's an awful lot of fascinating research being done, uh, particularly by Chinese scholars, uh, you know, because they have uh, pastoralism in Xinjiang and all. A- at any rate. Um, so I just say here that, you know, w- the, the baseline data that we want to be able to collect is about income, investments, ownership, access, social organization, uh, networks that people have, the transactions that they make, and of course generational and gender differences. How do people see and assess their livelihoods? In short, we will try to understand how they assess their situation and what concrete changes could improve their way of life and their maintenance of it. I'm talking about putting together a research team to, to do this in the next year. <clears throat> in, and I'm coming to the conclusion here. You've all been very patient. I thank you for that. In time, the team that will form the nucleus of this project will seek to answer will seek answers for, for a number of different, from a number of different types of people connected directly and indirectly to pastoralism, including personnel con- concerned with the science of breeding and rearing animals, as well as those concerned with production goals and improved development of products. We would seek to work with ranchers and business people, local politicians, and climate environmental scientists. With any given period of fieldwork, the project's researchers would convene, to discuss findings and present their ideas and materials in workshops and conferences. Since the intention is to document findings textually and visually, I would also like to develop a series of documentary films that depict aspects of pastoralist lifeways and activities. This could have the potential, at least, to connect more urban residents to an important but perhaps often taken for granted aspect of rural life and the national economy. If I'm able to establish connections to a number of Kazakh universities that a major part of the research beyond the obvious involvement of other professionals would be training students to help us conduct interviews and live for several weeks uh, per year during the summers among pastoralists to gain their own comprehensive sense of doing field work and understanding the living conditions and livelihoods of fellow countrymen. To facilitate training, I will seek funding for a field school that will teach ethnographic methods as well as to consider what it's like to live far from what one is accustomed to and how to create good rapport among the people willing to host and share viewpoints and knowledge. So now I'm coming to the the final chapter here, as it were. Um, If we were to make this research plan work, the fieldwork forays will take place over approximately five years in five to six areas of the country. That's why I put up this map. Um, it, 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 if, if, if everyone had x-ray vision, they'd be able to see the scale and all that. But it, it more or less depicts um, you know, the different landscapes of the country, the geomorphology, elevation. And, um, and so, of course, I'm thinking about working in the northeast, uh, in the northwest, in what we would call the southwest, Mangastau, and then, of course, in the area around uh, the southeast Almaty region and uh, the Shimken area, because you really have very uh, different ecologies in in all of these regions. So I think that's important to have that kind of comprehensive view of of what remains. Uh, so we would, we would work during each of the seasons of the year and establish what quantity of interviews and objective data collection of resources, property, kin organization, sociopolitical networks, credit and market access, transactional activities, etc., would be reasonably representative. All of that information will need to be juxtaposed to the latest phase of Kazakhstan's pastoralism in the 21st century, 
which is the capitalist model. The so-called fazenda system, which they have, they borrow the term from uh, the Brazilians, it's Portuguese, for basically ranching. Uh, it's a direct result of the dismantling of the sovhoses during the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and the buying up or private leasing of state lands and most of the farm machinery and capital assets that the so-called Soviet farm professional elite could convert into the latest incarnation of large-scale pastoralism. Ironic or not, it is mainly these men who see themselves as connected to the Kazakh buys, or the, the, the uh, rich lords of, of various regions of pre-Stalinism, who are able to extensify animal husbandry, garner support and subsidies from the independent state, and yet often express little to no sympathy or obligation to the increasingly indigent smallholders who constitute most of the country's rural herdsmen. Okay, this is, this is the conclusion here. Uh, while Kazakh pastoralism has maintained varieties of social stratification or structural inequality, even class differences, for many centuries, pastoralist practices in a free market, globalized environment with potentially insatiable demands for its products clearly appear as a new form of production following histories of kin-based organization and socialist organization. With much of the scientific and scholarly community warning of increased peril that could be caused by increasing production, neglect of biome carrying capacities, and too little mobile pasturing or grazing, we come to an important question. It is a question that also contains the makings of a thesis. This project, and one hopes continued research that will go well beyond its limitations, has to ask whether or not a capitalist phase of pastoralism can help to improve the overall quality of life for the common weal, and at the same time consider the conditions and sustainability of the country's vast but fragile ecosystems that must be strengthened and rationally utilized. Given much disequilibrium among Kazakhstan's rangeland zones, how can smallholders have a future as stock owners, and how might increasing scale of ranches affect ecosystems if mobility can be replaced by the making of fodder and processed feeds with an accompanying use of water sources that could parallel some of the wasteful tendencies of Soviet and American agriculture. Research among smallholders may reveal potential dependencies and independencies that may enable them to thrive while relying on new or renewed social organization. Smallholders usually see little sense in moving with their stock because of the prohibitive expenses of time, money, as well as numerous vulnerabilities or hazards of mobility. With an understanding of how mobility may augment ecological conditions, animal health, and pastoralist wealth, I plan to understand what discourages people from moving with animals and what would encourage them to do so. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'll conclude by saying that my own ideas for pilot ethnographic projects and long-term ethnographic research in Kazakhstan only now are taking shape. These ideas are focused on developing a comprehensive picture of what pastoralism looks like in major capacities. Furthermore, my aim is to understand how people directly involved in animal husbandry understand its role practically and symbolically in the welfare and importance it has to Kazakhstan and what they wish people who are disconnected from their practices maybe should know. It is expressly not an attempt to save a way of life or to resurrect a kind of existence that no longer is sensible. 
Nevertheless, I want to have the chance to document aspects of a contemporary way of life rather than continuing to contribute to a mere understanding of what it once was, despite all of the hazards facing people now, including climate change, uh, lack of capital, and access to productive pastures. Many thanks for your attention. So, I mean, things was a really interesting, really uh, provocative, and I really liked how, you know, you're not just laying out sort of an academic exercise, but you're, you're situating your agenda in kind of broader concerns that we all face, we hear about all the time. I'm curious, when you present this in Kazakhstan, and, and I presume you've dealt with some of these themes in your keynote speech, like what kind of reactions you get? Because I can imagine it's, it's very interesting because on the one hand you have, you know, as you, as you pointed out, this kind of modernizing impulse of the Nazarbayev uh, regime and high tech and oil and gas, and there's probably not much room in that agenda for what you're advocating here. But at the same time, there is this, you know, this national identity of the, you know, the nomadism, the Kazakh horsemen, and so forth. And so, so I mean, I'm just, how did it play out? How does it play out when you talk? to people in various, you know, situations, let's say, in Kazakhstan uh, about this? What kind of responses do you get? Well, I have to say, thanks for the question, Dan. I have to say that, um, you know, although I did give uh, you know, similar ideas uh, when I made this keynote, um, the audience was mostly students. It wasn't a big audience. And they were sort of very polite and respectful. Um, I got some concrete questions about, like, where would I work and why would I work in those places? And, mm -hmm. But I didn't really get um, a sense of what people felt about pastoralism. So that was kind of um, disappointing to me. But the truth of the matter is I haven't really had a chance to present this to wider Kazakh audiences, let alone academics and specialists who, whose, life, whose life this is. So I, I would be really interested to hear you know, them come after me uh, you know, in, 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 with, with some of this stuff. But I haven't had that experience yet. But, I mean, are there movements? Are there like organizations? Are there you know? I haven't seen any specific movements with regard to pastoralism, but clearly there are environmentally engaged movements and ecologically uh, focused movements, and those are those are the kind of people that I really do want to talk to and work with eventually. Yeah. 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 Kind of typical statistics about, you know, 
actual numbers of landowners, actual numbers of non-landowners. There's, there's just kind of speculative figures. Um, I think there's better data for China, as a matter of fact. You know, like concrete numbers. So um, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I haven't been able to access it yet. So, but no, I agree with you 100%. Well, I mean, just to follow up, sorry, but you, you threw out the number tens of thousands at one point. And I was wondering, is that where you're I think tens of thousands is a pretty fair uh, figure. Current you know. pastoralist farmers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that's probably even, and that's possibly a little conservative. Mm -hmm. I, I don't doubt that there's, there's, there must be at least 100,000 people directly involved in this industry. Mm -hmm. Even, uh, you know, minus the big landowners. So, I mean, this is still how many uh, rural people uh, are making their livelihoods. Making their livelihoods. So, yeah. So, are there any assessments of the contribution of uh, pastoralism into the contemporary Kazakh GDP? Or maybe, you know, figures from the Soviet times, how much significant is that? And that probably somehow, or at least in part, defines the government approach to supporting pastoralism. Can it, can you know, Kazakhstan just benefit from a certain sort of upgrade or additional rights given to pastoralists, or any support given to that? Uh, thank you. I mean, I think there's definitely statistics that say like what percentage of the GDP it is and all that. I, I don't have, I don't have that at my fingertips. So yeah. But no, those kinds of those those kinds of stats exist for sure. You know, how many kilos of meat are produced, how many uh, kilos of dairy products, all, all that stuff is uh, available, yeah. So. Russell, if I may, I'm just curious um, where this idea came from for this project. Um, it, it's fascinating, it's big, it's not Uzbekistan. No, it's not it's Uzbekistan. It's not settled life. It's not, uh, I guess, collect, collective farms. You, so you've studied collective farms, in, right? Yeah, yeah. Oral histories, and so you, you, you know rural life in Central Eurasia, I suppose. But I was just wondering if you could share with us like where this, how this idea developed and how you shifted I mean, I can guess you shifted from Uzbekistan for access reasons at some point, but I don't know. So it's kind of something I wanted to do probably for, I don't know, like 35 years. Um, and when I got up to say thanks to everybody who invited me in Krika and all that, and I've been, in, you know, been associated with Madison for more than 30 years, uh, there was a person I forgot to mention, and that's Anatoly Hazanov. And, uh, you know, I. When I was a graduate student, I took his seminar on, on pastoral nomadism. And um, I, I knew about him you know, before I came here and all, but, um, but that, you know, he, he's, he's the, the man you know, uh, for, for pastoralism. And he really helped convince me that one day this would be something to try to do. Uh, and so, actually up until a year ago, I was communicating with him about all this stuff, and he was saying, like, yes, yes, like something has to be done, there has to be a project in Kazakhstan, uh, you know, you should do it and all that. And so that's, that's kind of the reason. So, uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, you know, by, by, by 2010 or 2012, Uzbekistan was a very hard place to work, as you know. And that's when, that was the first time I started traveling to Kazakhstan. And it's not that I encountered any nomads or, or pastoralists, for that matter, but um, 
being in Kazakhstan really convinced me that I wanted to do a project, an ethnographic project there eventually. It's just, it's just been a long time in, in development, so that's it. Um, I, I very much applaud sort of a turn, turn towards environmental studies that makes this a really interesting project. But all sorts of questions, fortunately they are historian questions, so forgive me for bringing you back into the past even if you're looking for the future. I will, like your, your general framing of like pastoralism as, as having a future though, I think is completely compelling given the precarity of we're facing in all sorts of ways, like GDP growth, whatever, but yes, that's the thing. Who knows if that's going to be a thing to a hundred years from now? Pastoralism certainly could be, right? Um, but uh, so when you were talking, about, I got several things. But when you're talking about those physical geography journals, or those geography journals, I, I mean, those are fascinating. It's not surprising to me though that they're talking about climate. Um, there was such a robust physical, like history and field of physical geography in the Soviet Union, and they like talked about those things a lot, and especially that period in the late 60s, mm -hmm. there was a lot of drought, and so I don't necessarily, they're not talking about global warming there, that's too early, but like, but kind of dealing with climatic questions in a different context um, seems very interesting. I wonder also though, if those, in those dense geography journals, if the demographic shocks of, you know, 29 to 34, 33, wherever we want to stop it, are kind of coming in. Like they're not like Stalin killed all these people in a famine, right? But like clearly that's showing up in the demographic statistics and things like that. And if they're noting that in any sorts of oblique ways, that, that'd be really interesting to hear about. Um, I was also curious about, um, so I've done work on reindeer pastoralism and, and just the, the the comparisons between Central Asian pastoralism and, and sort of indigenous, you know, small peoples of the North pastoralism, because there, in some ways there's a lot of similar, you know, there's collectivized at the same time efforts at uh, centralization, but in the case of reindeer pastoralism, there's not this whole deep historical, like, these are, this is the horde, right? This is the enemy of the state, right? Like, that I think is a very, so case, all of it in a very different nuance in, in terms of the historical legacies in Central Asia. Like, because they were Mali and Narodi. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Mali, yeah. But, but I mean, you know, I mean, in my, in my case, there, there was like the Nancy and the, the Sami were like, pit, and the Kumi were all pitted against each other in this like very weird, um, uh, you know, effort to reform reindeer husbandry on the Kola Peninsula. Um, but yeah, um, I think I'll stop. But I, I mean, lots of interesting angles to go um, in, from the historical realm, even though I know you want to get away from that as the focus of the literature today. <laughs> Not necessarily. It is, it's just, it's hard for me to reckon this notion that for 5,000 years people have been doing this, and then all of a sudden, like, the, it, it, only, it can only take one new form, which would be the huge, the huge model of the huge ranches, you know, that, that are proving to be so ruinous in many countries. I mean, look at the problems Australia's facing, right? And they don't even have a huge population. So. I guess I did, the question was, did you see anything about demographic shocks in the, the 
No, but then again, I'm not going to claim that I read these journals extensively either, so that would be a big lie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have just a very dilettant question as someone who spent my high school years in Mongolia. Uh, and since this is one country you didn't mention, but I felt that at that time, uh, pastoralism was very much a presence there. And I was, and this is a country that is very close. It's different in terms of its, it's layout, uh, geographical. But still, uh, did you ever look at what was going on there in Mongolia now with uh, with the trends with pastoralism and how it compares? I, I am looking at the literature on Mongolia. Um, in fact, this guy I'm going to work with in Switzerland, he's worked in Mongolia. So yeah, no, Mongolia is very important, uh, comparatively speaking. Okay. Yeah, it, it's unique, you know, in comparison to Kazakhstan. But of course, there are many similarities too. So yeah, no, it's important. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned the access to pasture land as an issue. I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on like uh, how it works. Like, is it the uh, what? How, how is the prioritization of uh, efforts like uh, that access to land? Yeah, so my limited understanding of that is that uh, really since 1991, uh, people are allowed to lease land. They're not really allowed to own it outright. They get these very long leases. And as I was saying, that a lot of the people who were part of the SOFOs hierarchy, they ended up buying everything that was kind of possible to buy. Uh, and I'm not saying that there's like, you know, they exhausted all the land that could be bought, not by any means. Um, but in some ways, they got extensive parcels of land. And so, within a limited degree, whatever mobility you see, ironically, is by the biggest landholders, right? Even though they themselves don't have very much to do with mobility, but they can, they can hire other people to do some of the mobility. What I'm saying, though, is still the majority of people in the country who have anything to do with pastoralism don't own or lease land for the most part. Um, and they have like a, they, they're developing a situation of the, the quote unquote tragedy of the commons, where you have a number of people in a given area and they're all just using that common area to do their uh, grazing, uh, or the animals. And, and that's what's creating some, uh, some degradational effects, you know. Uh, but I can't really speak to like the overall extent of land that's owned. Um, I just know that there's still not outright ownership. Um, and of course, the Kazakh state has a lot of land itself. It has it in the form of reserves or preserves, national parks, so on and so forth. Um, and so there's some talk about like, what is the Kazakh government willing to do from this point forward in terms of selling or leasing some of those lands, state lands. Um, but you know, the, the problem for obviously small holders is they don't have the money to, to lease land. So. This then becomes a question of, is, it just the, is that just the way it is, or is there something that can be done to give them some greater access, even with limited amounts of money? Can foreigners and multinationals lease land in Kazakhstan? Can, can foreigners and multinationals lease land? I don't know. Wasn't China trying to buy yeah. um, a whole lot of land there? Yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, wasn't there a law, um, a law that almost passed that allowed China to own land? 
in Kazakhstan? Yeah. It may be the case, but all I can tell you is in in the literature that I've covered on pastoralism, you know, pertaining to the last ten years, I don't see anything about foreigners having holdings. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe it maybe it's possible. At least foreigners having holdings for the use of, for pastoralism. There are, of course, like big export markets of mutton, for example, and, and beef to China. Um, but I don't think those are Chinese enterprises in Kazakhstan, as far as I know. I'm not really sure. Well, because it seemed like in your effort to like, gain support for this, I mean, yeah, sure, you could work and convince the Kazakh government to somehow invest in this. In, but I don't know, maybe you could, it seems like it's a kind of issue, the kind of agenda that would inspire you know, global uh, activists you know, maybe you know, Westerners who have foundations who want to invest in eco diversity, and and you know, you're so I'm just wondering if that is an avenue you would consider, or if that would raise its own can of worms. Um, I have looked into that, and there have been like a, there are a few organizations out there. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure, like to the extent to which they are cooperating with the government, or the government cooperates with them. So these are all these unknowns. And I think for me, probably the smartest thing is just gonna be like to take some baby steps with a pilot project and then see, you know, can I, can I make it bigger? And like start with a university or something? Yeah. And so I, I think- Work with the scientists. I mean, I imagine this as being very interdisciplinary. Like- Absolutely. Agronomists. And Biologists, Biologists, economists, yeah. the whole nine what, yards. What, da- what data do they have? What, what studies are they, they doing already locally? Well, I mean, I think, I think there's actually some pretty good data from, from biology and ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, not from, I don't see as much social science on it. That's the point, you know? So. And I don't know of anyone in Kazakhstan doing that kind of ethnography right now. I could be wrong. Uh, but this is something that Anatoly and I kept talking about. He kept saying, no one's doing it, you know, so. Yeah. Okay, well, any final comments or questions? If not, then let's thank uh, Ask you uh, when the time is fine with you, but uh, if you need to leave early, leave early. I, I think I just wanted to get a sense of who is interested in and what to do with this opportunity. Yeah. So I, I don't want to put extra workload on you. I mean, this is kind of my job description, so. Okay. What's your name?